Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, current, and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome our guest today, writer, director, and producer Ron Shelton, who was nominated for an Oscar for his screenplay for Bull Durham and has written a wonderfully insightful book about that film entitled The Church of Baseball. The Making of Bull Durham, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings, and a Hit. Welcome, Ron. Thank you. That's quite a title. Happy to be here. How did you work on that one? <laughs> I, don't, I don't actually like that, that the second subtitle about crazy fights and all that. I think it sort of cheapens it. But I told them, please, when it comes out in paperback, lose that part of the title. Um, I'll find out if they are because I'm having dinner with the editor who's coming out in New York next week. But uh, yeah, that was the publisher trying to sell books, I think. Sure, sure. Well, the Church of Baseball obviously is from the movie and Annie Savoy says that she she's a member of the Church of Baseball. And I have to tell you that I am as well. I have been worshiping baseball since uh, the 80s. I, I grew up in I was born in Chicago. I grew up in L.A. So by rights, I should be a Dodgers fan, but I have, I have embraced the Cubs mostly since 84 when they won their first division title. So I, I am a diehard Cubs fan, and sometimes it's hard to explain to people that for six months of the year, it's, it's kind of your religion. Uh, did, you, did you grow up a fan? Well, of it's the easy because Wrigley, yeah, I just want to say Wrigley Park is such a great cathedral too that's a really beautiful church building so i i get it in chicago so you were born in montecito you grew up in north of la which team did you embrace as a kid i was not born in, where does this come from this is the third time i've had to say i was not born in montecito where is it on my bio it's on imdb so i think uh we have to, have to change that i am IMDb will not let me get into it to change about 40% inaccuracies on it. So I'll have to fix that. No, I was born in Whittier, California. That's a long way from Montecito. Um, it is, it, East it LA. Is, and I grew up yeah, in Santa Barbara, near Montecito. Anyway, on with, on with after I've trashed IMDb, you can ask your question. So did you embrace, well, I mean, that's kind of a bit of a major league baseball wasteland. You're not really close to a major park. So did you grow up a Dodger fan, a Giants fan? Did you grow up a baseball fan at all? Oh, yes. I mean, uh, a great baseball player from Santa Barbara. He went to Santa Barbara High School, as I did with Eddie Matthews. So we were all big fans of the Milwaukee Braves and Eddie Matthews in Santa Barbara. Um, uh, you know, the my mother went to high school with Jackie Robinson at Muir High School in Pasadena. So we were Dodger fans uh, when they were the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I was a tiny kid, but um, so uh, not yet knowing the significance of Jackie Robinson. It was just, he was our guy. So it was, it was the Dodgers and the Braves. Those were our teams. Sure, sure. Well, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat because I didn't really... When we moved, we moved out to L.A. in 
55, the year the Dodgers won, the Brooklyn Dodgers won the pennant, but I was only four, so I didn't know much. But I, I liked the Dodgers because they were now my team in L.A. And then um, I certainly knew about the Braves because as an elementary school teacher, uh, excuse me, as an elementary school student, one of the first books I ever read was a biography of Lou Burdett. So I, I kind of, <laughs> so I was involved in it. Now you became a baseball player. What motivated you to become a player? Uh, did you just like the game? Yeah, I think a lot of, you know, my father liked and played baseball and was a baseball fan. And it's a father son thing, I think for a lot of us. Um, and now my son's off, just got a, off a freshman in college playing baseball. So there, there is a father son ritual. And I think the game, appealed to me from the beginning and then the older I got the more as the book talks about what I really love about the game the, uh, the many things about the game um, so yeah I, I was drawn to baseball more than football for instance and um, like so many American kids uh, even though it's not really the American game anymore is it it's football I feel but um, yeah I, I think that uh, true and, and by the way the Lou Burdett story when when the Dodgers moved to L.A. in, what, 57? Uh, 57. Eight, they went to, uh, we, we went down to see the Braves play at the uh, Dodgers at the Coliseum. So that was my first major league game because there was minor league baseball in L.A. There was the L.A. Angels and there was the Hollywood Stars yeah, where the Grove is now. And, um, and, and so we went down and we're waiting outside the Coliseum after the game. We wanted to get a glimpse of Eddie Matthews. You know, this was like <laughs> seeing Jesus or something, even though he's a complete <laughs> alcoholic. He was our hero. And while I'm waiting in the crowd, big hands on my shoulder just pushes me aside. Says, get away from me, kid. Or out of the way, kid. And I looked up and it was Lou Burdett. And um, so <laughs> I went running back to my dad. Lou Burdett touched me here. I didn't say he shoved me out of the way, but. All, all the way back to Santa Barbara. Don't touch his shoulder. And Lou Burdett put his hand right there. So <laughs> I, I, that's part of the mythology, I think. Well, we're kindred spirits because I also went out to the Coliseum. And I remember um, Billy Crystal talks a little bit about it in, I think, City Slickers, where he talks about the going to his first ball game where he goes out and he see everybody watch baseball games in black and white. And when you go to a live game, you see the green grass and it's I mean, I remember walking out of the Coliseum or through the Coliseum tunnels and I see that green grass. It was just just so cool for me, uh, as you say, like a religious experience. Um, now, here it is. Twenty twenty two. Baseball has been around forever. Do you still get a thrill with the game? Uh, is it still the same game for you with all without all the craziness? You know, I, I'm not a lunatic about baseball. People think I probably am because of the movies and my background. You know, I have a life. <laughs> I work. I have projects I write and work on. And uh, I, I really enjoyed watching my son play because I had three daughters and none of them played baseball. So um, going to travel games and club games and all the way from Little League all the way through high school and then him going off to college and uh, – me streaming the fall ball game. I get I get a thrill out of watching my son play. Although I, I will say that when I watch a game, I, I think I'm watching a different game than the fan just because I played it. You know, I'm, I'm 
I'm seeing it a little differently. And I try to make movies that are from the player's point of view, not the fans. Well, forgive me for diving a little bit into baseball idiosyncrasies because I feel like you, you, we, you would have an opinion on this. I watch games. The game has changed a lot. Uh, small ball seems to have disappeared. Why do you think that the main reason that players don't bunt anymore? Or try to hit singles and not uppercut. I mean, uh, well, because the home run has been rewarded financially. That's the first thing. It's probably the big thing. Um, I think it's hurt the game, honestly. I think when you see somebody like Jeff McNeil for the Mets who chokes up that much and he leads the league in hitting, uh, and you see Freddie Franklin who chokes up that much and he hits the ball all over the field, um, it's more thrilling than another home run. Uh, honestly, uh, and it's in a certain way harder. And I think the teams that I think the next generation may be more like McNeil and Freeman or Tony Gwynn because the pitching is getting so fast. And the game was not built for six four, two hundred and forty pound guys that release the ball, you know, ten feet in front of the mound and throw ninety eight miles an hour. I mean, it wasn't built like that. And so the only answer to that is to is to hit singles. I think. Uh, because now if you hit 240 and 25 home runs, you make $15 million. It's hard to argue with that if, if you're the ball player. It's just pretty boring, to be honest. Um, there's no such thing as a rally anymore. Uh, you know, I'd like to see the bunt brought back as well. Uh, um, well, as a friend, so out, as I'm a with friend. you in that. I'm old school. I the changes, though. I like putting the clock on the on the Pitcher, I, um, I I like getting rid of the shift next year, so I'm I'm for these changes. Um, well, I you know one of my favorite players right now, just kind of fun to watch. Although he's just what we're talking about. Kyle Schwarber on the Phillies hits mammoth home runs, and he strikes out. I don't think he hits a lot of singles, and yet he's getting a lot of attention. But let's let's move on to. Bull Durham. I, I just did my homework last night. I, I watched it again just to be fresh on it. And, and I just want to say congratulations to you on a, just a wonderful multidimensional ex movie experience. Uh, uh, it, it's just fun to watch. And I always talk about, since my podcast is about classic movies and cult movies, there's some movies that you watch and you'll never watch them again because you have no interest in seeing them again. Either the subject matter doesn't interest you or it just was not in your soul. Bull Durham is the kind of movie that you can watch multiple times and you just enjoy just the whole atmosphere of it. Um, when you made that film, and we'll talk a little about the travails you went through, you certainly do document them well in the book. Uh, did you think that you had made something that would be timeless like that? Not at all. I thought I wouldn't work again. Uh, I talked about that in the book. Um, there, you know, some movies are fights every step of the way, and some are not. Uh, I've been on both. That movie was particularly strange for me because I was making the movie that I wanted to make, and nobody liked it um, except the cast and the crew. Studio hated it. <laughs> they tried to fire me and they tried to fire Tim and it's all in the book. I just couldn't understand 
why if you like the script and you're looking at the dailies coming in, you didn't think I was giving you what was on the page. That to this day, I can't figure out. Um, but I know I was just trying to stay on schedule and not get fired. And uh, it was kind of a survival uh, thing. Um, little did I know that <laughs> this movie would be giving so much joy to people decades later uh, and that we'd be talking about it. Um, that's thrilling and rewarding, but it took a while to get to that stage. I couldn't even watch the movie for 10 years after I made it because every scene brought back some bloody fight behind the scenes. Um, and uh, and now, I can, now I can enjoy it, but it took a while. I, I read um, a couple of things. Tell me if these are myths or whatever. One, one somebody wrote that uh, the character of Crash Davis was inspired by a character from the Wild Bunch. Is that true? Um, you broke up. Can you say that again? Oh, sure. Of course. Um, uh, I read somewhere that the character of Crash Davis, the Costner character, was inspired by the William Holden character in The Wild Bunch, uh, a guy who loved something that didn't love him back. Is that accurate? Uh, not exactly, but sort of. He is inspired by the classic hired gun in movie in Westerns, uh, a man who goes from town to town, a consummate professional, being paid to do a task and then having to leave and go to a town and do it again. And, and he is, it crashes at that part of his career. But I, I thought of him like, like the classic Western anti-hero. Uh, he has no past. You don't know where he's from. You have no idea. Was he ever married? What were his parents? Did he go to junior college? I mean, you know nothing about him. But in another way, you know everything about him. So. Uh, now, The Wild Bunch being my favorite movie and William Holden playing that kind of character, um, you know, I suppose it's, it, it, you could connect them, but it was more like the, the, just the archetype hired gun in Westerns. Got it, got it. And uh, the original title you played around with for a while was the player to be, that player was the player to be named later? I wrote a base, minor league baseball script called The Player to be Named Later so many years before I wrote Bull Durham. Um, so I'd already written one that I destroyed because it, it didn't work, but it got me into that world. And I typed Bull Durham on, on the title page when I started writing because uh, it was a tobacco company from Durham. And I gave Crash his opening line is, I am the player to be named later. So that got that phrase I love so much out of my system and I never threatened to rename the movie. It's 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 sort of an existential, it's like a, a some intellectual French you know, novel from the 50s or something, the player to be named later. You're not who you really are. You don't have a name. They're gonna tell you who you are later, but you're actually gonna be traded. So it got a little philosophical on me, but, um, I just thought it was perfect that Crash owned, it, owned up to it. Uh, it tells you a lot about him right away. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. In the in the movie, you never explain how Crash got his nickname. Correct. Correct. Do Do you know? 
I found the name. I, I was, uh, before I wrote the script, I was driving around in the Carolina League, exploring minor leagues for the first time since I'd played many years earlier. Just wanted to see if the minors had changed because the majors were now into big money and major league players now had agents and publicists and spokespeople. And, you know, they'd become distant and, uh, you know, you couldn't hang out with them without an appointment and going through the representatives and all that nonsense. And I was afraid the minor leagues had changed. And the minor leagues hadn't changed a bit since I played them. Guys were sending notes to girls and, you know, people were terrified of being released. So I was thrilled to know the minors were the same. And while I was driving around the Carolina League and the South Sally League, the South Atlantic League, I, I picked up a Carolina League record book and I would just read it for in the bar or something. I don't know why. I got a kind of a pleasure out of looking at, you know, 24, some, you know, Hall of Famer was playing there. And, and in 1947 or eight, I came across this name, Crash Davis, who hit 50 doubles for the Durham Bulls in, in 1948. And I thought Crash Davis was the best name. I wish I was named Crash something. So um, <laughs> I had the name for the character before, before I'd written a line of, of, of the thing. And then it turned out, as I talk about the book, Crash Davis was not only still alive, he lived in Durham and he came to the, he called me up and I had to get permission to use his name and we became great friends. That's great. That's a great story. Uh, yeah, I have to say that casting Kevin Costner at that time in his career, it was such a coup for you, I think, just in terms of having the perfect actor to play that role. I know a number of actors were considered for the role. It must have been just, as you're seeing Costner, Costner build this character, it must have been tremendously exciting for you to see an actor in this lead, I would think. I was thrilled, but I, I never considered anybody other than Kurt Russell who was unavailable and who played minor league baseball. Uh, and the book gets into the, it's, it's, it's nonsense that it was offered and other, the producers may have been talking about other people, but I gave it to Costner's agent when I was halfway through. Kevin, once and I once Kevin went out to the batting cage on Sepulveda Boulevard and took batting practice, which he insisted on doing, I knew the part was his. And um, somehow over here, part of the reason I wrote the book, I about all the people who turned out. It's just not true. In fact, Kurt Russell would have said yes too had he not been unavailable. But I was thrilled to discover Kevin. Well, he's he's um, I think uh, he certainly anchors the film beautifully. And uh, just uh, I often find that in a movie that features sports, you obviously have to appeal to women as well, a major part of your audience. And I'm sure that Kevin's presence in that film was certainly a boon to female audiences. Yeah, but Susan Sarandon's Annie Savoy was a a boon to women audiences too. I mean, because she was um, she was her own woman. She wasn't defined in terms of the man. She didn't apologize for her behavior. She determined her own, you know, kind of sexual uh, life and agenda. Um, and she was nobody's fool. And um, you know, she was at a point of her life where she had to make some changes and decisions and they were difficult and that's exactly where Kevin Costner's character 
was at a point of his life he had to make some difficult choices. So I think the fact that she tells the story is important. Kevin obviously is appealing, you know, character and actor and presence. So I think they combined, you know, as I as I say, I, I got really lucky with the cast. I couldn't I couldn't have I, I to this day I couldn't imagine another cast. Well, in the book and reading about the uh, challenges to Tim Robbins from the studio, uh, that uh, I'm sure was very frustrating for you. I know that uh, they they seem to wanted a Anthony Michael Hall, the kid from those John Hughes teenage comedies, to play uh, Nuke. Um, uh, I, I thought Robbins was just terrific. Uh, he wasn't really a ball player, though. You had to kind of get him through, through some training, correct? Well, everybody had to do training. I mean, Tim had played baseball. He just hadn't pitched, and pitching was a whole new motion. You know, he's a big guy, 6'5", and so we had to work on his motion, but we had Grady Little uh, was running the camp. He was the actual manager of the Durham Bulls, later of the Boston Red Sox and the Los Angeles Dodgers. So he ran the camp, but Kevin went to the camp. All, every actor plus our minor leaguers had to go to the camp every day. And, and they had basically two hours of baseball practice and and work on things. And uh, Tim worked very hard. I, I think he's brilliant in the movie. I think that he doesn't get enough credit. Um, it's such a different part from who he really is. You know, he's a very serious guy and a theater guy and has a, th a theater acting troupe. And, uh, you know, and for him to so embrace Nuke, and bring kind of dignity to Nuke. You know, Nuke is, could easily be the fool and the idiot. He, and, I mean, he, he grows in dignity throughout the story, and he's actually teasing Crash at the end of it, uh, which means that Crash and Andy's lessons have taken. Well, uh, they're, they're, obviously their they're chemistry on screen was terrific enough to they later became a real couple, I found it interesting. Um, definitely. Um, now let's talk about you. You you are making your directing debut. I mean, you've been writing for uh, a, a decade, and uh, this is your directing debut. Did you have some mentors that helped you get over that first hurdle? Did pe people you could call to ask questions or take out to lunch? Yes, I uh, a director uh, named Rod Roger Spottiswood, who, who directed Under Fire and then uh, The Best of Times, who uh, kind of discovered me as a, a writer out there trying things made and became a job player. Um, he was fa famously, he, he edited three Sam Peckinbaugh movies and Sam, who was notoriously, um, you know, it's a miracle you can survive three Peckinbaugh movies. And, and Roger was kind of brilliant, I think director and and he allowed me not only to be part of planning the movie and the cast and the movie on the sets and I directed the unit on under fire and the best of times and that was my film school basically um so the second unit is out directing things that don't involve actors that involve well don't involve stars uh action things and uh, so I was you know in the bar and in the restaurants and on the set with the actors and I discovered I really liked actors and based on those two moves I declared I'm a director. 
Well, certainly being comfortable around actors <laughs> makes the directing job pretty good. I think, I think it's often quoted that casting is 80% of your job. I don't know if that's entirely true, but it certainly helps. You can't, no matter how clever you are, and, and, and you're kind of doomed because, and that, that, that's the trickiest thing is, you know, the fights with the financier over casting because they want a big name. The big name might not be right for the part. The person who's brilliant for the part might not get the movie financed. So it's a constant push and pull, as you know, Steve, uh, to find somebody who makes you and the financier happy. Sure, sure. Uh, the other thing uh, I, I've learned over the years is that in talking to actors about their performance, uh, there's a kind of a, a fine line you run because uh, uh, it's almost like there's a kind of a language, an unspoken language between actor and a director. But if you over, over uh, ask questions or give advice, it might confuse the actor. Did you discover anything that was useful in that area in terms of speaking to actors? Are you fairly loquacious or are you fairly low key? I'm fairly low key, but I, I think it's very much the athletic model. How you talk to an actor is how you talk to an athlete. If you're the manager or the coach, you um, first of all you want them to have confidence and belief in themselves. I also believe in rehearsal, which a lot of people don't do, and a lot of people don't like to do. I love to do rehearsal. Tommy Lee Jones said, "Call it practice. Let's have some practice." You know, you wouldn't think of playing a baseball game without a lot of practice. Um, so act without a lot of practice. So um, good and bad ideas after. I got a crazy idea for this scene. Good idea, bad. Let's play with it, you know, and bring your ideas. And so when we start shooting, I'm not rewriting because when you're a writer director, there's no time. You know, I can't be rewriting at midnight. I need to go to sleep because I get a cup at five. So I try to get the rewrites done before shooting. There might be little fixes during the shoot little things but not nothing significant um so yeah i i, I you know the spencer tracy said his he had a great um definition of acting he says it's just looking the other person in the eyes and telling them the truth and so i tend to be of that school of director just tell them the truth and if you need to know what the truth is let's talk about the text and figure out what the truth is um so, yeah, I think it's athletic. I think almost everything's athletic, though, but that's my problem. <laughs> well, what's what's very interesting about the movie also is the texture of the South and minor league baseball. Obviously, you brought a tremendous a lot of experience because you had been in the minor league system. Uh, Baltimore Orioles, correct? Yes. By the way, the first time I saw the movie, I think it was the first time I ever heard Major League Baseball referred to as the show. I thought that was kind of a cool reference. Um, and that was based on your experience? It might have been. Later, I didn't hear it. Now it's sort of come back because of the movie. But I, it may have been just the deck I played in. The show, let's go to the show or the bigs. The other thing was the bigs. You never said the majors. You never said the big leagues. It was the show of the bigs. He's going to the bigs, which I love. But show had a magical uh, 
you know, aura to it. So I, I, I put the show hopefully into the general vernacular. Bull Durham's also a very sexy movie. I mean, if, if they're not talking about sex, they're engaging in sex or variations of sex. Uh, for the for obviously this is 88 uh, movies have matured co completely from the the code era, of course. Uh, uh, obviously, did you have fun with that aspect of the movie? Because it certainly looked like the characters were having fun with it. The only way to do sex scenes is to make them fun. The only way I know how to direct them or to get the actors to relax. Um, it seems like the sex scenes, we're kind of done with them now because of all various social pressures. Uh, it's almost like there's a, a code coming back, if you know what I mean. Uh, they have intimacy coordinators now, and you know it's it's so choreographed. If I have a sex scene, I don't even write them anymore because I don't want to have the committees and lawyers coming in negotiating with me and the actors. Uh, I would always sit down with the actor and actress before they signed on and said, "Here's a scene. There's nudity involved. Uh, if you're if you're not comfortable with that, you shouldn't don't say yes. If you don't trust me, don't say yes." Uh, you won't be asked to do anything you don't you don't sign off on and aren't comfortable with, and we'll have time to prepare and the set will be closed. So let's let's have that understanding ahead of time. Um, and, and you know when I did Paul Newman in Blaze, he said he'd never done a sex scene before, which was amazing. He was like in his late sixties, uh, and he was very embarrassed. And I said, let's make it funny. You don't have to do anything. We'll be, you're beating watermelon with the, with the lady, and and you know and that's how it works. So that's the only. Also, keep in mind, just for me to get on a soapbox, you know, in the late '80s, sexual paranoia was taking off because first talk of AIDS was happening, and and um, and and behavior. You know, the wild '60s and '70s was over, and the sex, drugs, rock and roll age was over. And um, when I played baseball, it was in the middle of that time. So uh, I thought, and I hate sex scenes in movies that everybody's pretending to have their nirvana moment. So I say, let's make it fun again. People remember, oh yeah, I remember sex used to be fun. But, so let's do that in the movies. And, and that's honestly all we were doing. Well, you certainly had a, a kindred spirit in Susan because she seemed to embrace all of this stuff with a good sense of humor. And uh, you had a leading lady who, I guess, really knew how much fun this role was. And, and she backed you up in several situations. Uh, it must have been a real pleasure to be with her. Did we break up there? Ben, yeah, Susan, we... Susan, Susan. I'm sorry you broke up, but I, I got the question. Susan was a great ally uh, to me because we didn't have to talk about it, but on the set, I could I could see that she was she was listening to me. She was giving me respect that all the other actors followed suit. Kevin gave me great respect. So when the leading man and lady are giving the respect to a first-time director, it means the world to the director. <laughs> um, now, I've never had a problem with actors on any movie. I've worked with some of the big big names. 
And I think it's just because I start by giving respect to the actor. Uh, it, 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 you don't, and, and I think a lot of directors don't. They treat the actors like you know talking props or something. And I, I think the actors are brave. It's, uh, you know, they're completely exposed to, uh, you know, even when they're fully clothed. And uh, and and you may ruin their performance in the editing room. You might salvage their performance in the editing room. But uh, you're kind of in it together, and you have to. The hierarchy of who's boss, who's on top, has to go out the window when you're when you're working with an actor. Now the buckles stop on the director's desk, not the not the actors, and they know that. And I know that. But John Wooden, the great basketball coach, said he said he learned this, that he should stop trying to handle his athletes, and he should think of working with his athletes, and that's the model I've always used. Got it. Um, Armin Gans, who was your production designer, I thought was very great at creating the atmosphere of the minor league world. And of course, Annie's house and all of the props and everything, the design, uh, that was a big plus for the movie. And it was his first uh, credit as a production designer. Armin, the late Armin Gans was, was brilliant and we became close. He sadly died too young, but um, he, he had an architect degree, architecture degree from Washington, St. Louis, a great school. He was a San Francisco Giants lunatic. <laughs> um, he was from Tennessee. He was a really wide range, widely read guy. And we hit it off, and it was his first job like that. I mean, he had he worked for Coppola as a on the on the set design, on set decorating. But he was so ready to make the move that the moment we found Annie's house, I mean, he had he had places that sold vintage wallpaper lined up. You know, we put all that wallpaper in. That was all Armin Gans, and he, you know, he was just brilliant. Great loss, and I miss him. Well, you know, she she has this whole thing where she lights candles. She's really into candles, which I think probably gave the uh, the whole worship of baseball a more religious feel it was probably very much a part of that thing uh she's a very religious person in terms of her, her yeah, yeah she had her altar she had her altar and uh i think you uh, i think there was a yep. scene where she talks yeah. about thurman munson that you had to cut out and she loved thurman munson was that something yeah there's this there's a chapter in the book called kill your darlings and it's prince my favorite scene, everybody's favorite scene in full, and I talk about why I cut it out, what I learned from it. Broke everybody's heart, Susan's, even mine, but I think the movie worked better without it. And it, uh, a lot of directors will tell stories and cutting out their favorite scene to improve the movie. And so I try to analyze in the book why, what that was about and, and why I did it and what I learned or didn't learn. Sure. Uh, four years before you made um, Bull Durham, I got a chance to work with Gene Kaur. He directed a film for the Sundance Institute called Desert Bloom. I, I was assigned to him as his unit publicist. So I got a chance to work with Gene and I guess Gene did your second unit. Yeah, Gene was staying with me a lot in LA when he did Desert Bloom, before he went off to do Desert Bloom. And he played baseball. He was from the Bay Area, uh, from East Bay. 
tough neighborhood of Richmond and, uh, uh, and his father coached in college and, uh, and I had this history with him as an indie filmmaker. And I had to have a second unit guy that I could trust, you know, with the double play or, <laughs> and so uh, he was very, very valuable to me. Because I would send him off somewhere. I said, I need you to shoot a double play, a game of pepper, this, that, and something else. The guy's sliding in first, head first down the third. And I knew I wouldn't worry about it being done wrong. So Gene was a, a soul, a soulmate. Cool, cool. Well, you talk about your fights with the executives at Orion. Uh, I think the problem with Desert Bloom was that our executive left the studio. So at release time, we had no executive and the movie was kind of dumped, which is sad because Desert Bloom is a really good movie. That, that's a big problem. What, that, that happens a lot. Where it really happens is, it's happened to me about five times, where you have years of your life getting a script up to starting line. It's, a, it's been approved, the budget has been approved, everything's been approved, but money hasn't been released yet. And that can take years. And then the head of the studio chain leaves and the, first, the new person comes in and cancels everything that's in the pipeline and starts all over. And um, it, it, it's short-sighted to me why new studio heads don't say, maybe there's some really good things in the pipeline, uh, but they don't. And uh, I think it's about ego. It's about all kinds of Hollywood systemic problems. But it happened to Gene on release. It ha it's happened to me before we got to shoot many, many times. Right, right. I noticed in the cast an actor who would soon become a big magician in Las Vegas named Danny Gans. Was he? A, were you aware? Were you aware of the fact that Danny was a was adept at magic? He wasn't a magician. He was a comic. He was a comedian. Comic. And he did impressions. And. Uh, I cut these two big scenes out of the movie, which he never forgave me for. One is he sang the national anthem before the game in his uniform, doing uh, impressions of Michael Jackson to Frank Sinatra. And, and, you know, it's like a Vegas act, which he later became. But I cut it out because it just, it takes too long to get through the national anthem. And then I had him singing in the front of the bus with a couple guys, which I wished I'd have kept in. Um, but Danny, you know, I, I, the book says he made $2,500 a week for four weeks. And five years later, he signed a $100 million deal at the Rio Hotel in, uh, <laughs> in Vegas for a 10-year deal for $100 million. Uh, and sadly, he passed away. He had a, a heart attack in the gym when he was in great shape. There was had a heart issue that had been undiagnosed. So, so many people were lost from the movies, uh, sadly. Oh, I know. I know. Um, let me ask you a quick question about the book. Um, what you, you've written a very forensic history of your movie. I mean, it, it's very rare that a director will write a book entirely from his own point of view about how he wrote the script, how he directed, blah, blah, blah. What was the motivating factor for you to write a book on this? I was asked to a literary agent saw something I'd written about the movie 
wanted to meet and he said, I can, I think you want to write a book. I think I can sell it based on the one thing I wrote. I had no intention of a book. He said, what you need to do is write an introduction, which is basically why do you want to write a book other than because somebody might pay you and, and then write chapter one, introduction, chapter one, and this other chapter I'd written that sort of will fit in somewhere. And then a table of contents, which he helped me work out. And within short order, I had four offers from four publishers. And I we did virtual interviews. This was during the pandemic. Normally, you'd go back to New York and meet everybody. And I chose Alfred Knopf, probably the, you know, the Tiffany of publishers, and the, the editor who I just hit it off with. He, he'd done Sondheim's book and all manner of books and he was a baseball fan and he was closer to my age than the other editors and i thought that was a positive because i don't have to explain the 60s or 70s um he was peter gethers and we became great friends and the whole process was very painless uh much less painful than writing a script to be honest i i write with partners because i've been writing mostly comedy you're writing drama. Obviously, it's you and the and the screen. Um, as a writer, do you like to outline your script completely before you write the first scene, or do you kind of do it kind of organically? As do scenes come to you as you're writing the process? I'm curious. I don't like to over organize. I don't like to over outline. I like to do a, I call you got to know what the stones of the river are that I will dance across. In other words, uh, you know, I talk about in the script, script a, a writer has to have load bearing walls. And all that means is there's, there's a couple of important structural things you have to have in place. Uh, this is why when I'm given a script to rewrite, if the load-bearing walls aren't in the right place, I won't touch it. If the load-bearing walls, I said, I can fix this because the basic structure is correct. And, um, um, you know, studios, financiers, networks, they don't understand what a load-bearing wall is. When they make a little suggestion, they don't realize the whole building will fall down or not. So um, uh, I, write, I usually write alone, but I have a, one guy I've written with, the guy who wrote Tin Cup with me, John Norville, we're in the middle of writing something on spec that, while I do all my other things, the option to book, and I said, we'll take forever. And we have very simple outline. What's the first act move? What's the second act move? What's the third act? Uh, and I don't want to know how I'm going to get there. Um, now, if I'm writing for a network, which I'm doing something for Disney Plus, there's 7,000 outlines, and it drives me nuts. And I don't think it, it's the way to get my best work out of me, although I think it's going to end up pretty good. But it's, I'm not comfortable, so that's why I tend to write a lot of things on spec, because I don't have to get 40 sets of notes, um, which I'm not very good with. <laughs> sure, I completely understand you that. You do. I, I don't know. I just... The other thing that uh, drives me a little crazy is that everybody's telling me every character has to have an arc. There has to be a beginning, a middle, of end of the character. They've got to be change through the course of the script. And I often question that that whole methodology. 
Uh, is Indiana Jones at the beginning of Raiders of the Lark, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark any different at the end? <coughs> is my, is uh, Marty McFly any different at the end of Back to the Future? I mean, sometimes the action changes you because of action, but do characters go through arcs? Is that something you think about, Ron? I don't think every character has to go through an arc. I think it often serves the drama if, if somebody goes through change. I don't think everybody has to change. Sometimes the drama is about, you know, the protagonist changes, the antagonist doesn't, or whatever. Um, you know, does Iago change? No, he kills a fellow and he's the same. Uh, um, but one can ask the question, I, in the middle of a phone call this morning with Norval on, on our Ted Williams thing, does the writer change or does Ted Williams change? And uh, because I think one of them makes an acknowledgement that is a huge change at the end of the story, but the other guy is kind of saying, um, but I, I, I reject the fact that everybody has to change. Um, I think I think it's a, it's a false trope. I mean, with Crash Davis, Crash Davis is the in a way a war weary veteran trying to find his his level in in minor league baseball, hoping that someday he might get back, and then he quits at the end, which is a little bit of a revelation. But has he changed dramatically? I mean, how would you ex how would you explain his character in that situation? I think both he and Susan have changed dramatically. First of all, he at the beginning of the story is going back to the big leagues, much less to AAA. He recognizes that his career is over. He's not going to get back. That's a lifetime dream he's given up. He also recognizes that, you know, we don't go into, he's probably had a lot of pretty wild one-night stands or weekends in Pensacola on a road trip. We don't go into any of that. We just know he wasn't, he, he was not lacking a nighttime companionship whenever he wanted. Uh, he was just that kind of guy. But he's given up a lot. He's given up everything, his mooring, he's given up his dream to start all over, hopefully catch on as a manager at the bottom again, but also to take his chances on a kind of relationship he's never had before. Um, because both, Su and Susan's done the same. She's, 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 Annie Savoy has been living kind of a life with boys and he's been playing with boys. They're both doing boys games and they're to, you can't do that forever. Um, and it's kind of glorious as long as you can. Uh, the problem with giving it up is there's nothing harder than real adult sustained relationship. I think every man and woman I know would say that's the hardest thing, a marriage or that kind of committed relationship. Um, and I mean, it's harder than making movies. It's harder, and I'm in. A, I'm in one. It's great, but uh, I've, been, I've been I've been divorced, but I've been one for thirty years. And I, but you know, you put a lot into that. Everybody does. The man does. The woman does. The whoever, whatever gender identity is. And so they've both given up a lot, and they both changed because she's set up her life so that the boy. The young man, the sexy young guy, will listen to her, and then he'll have a companion all summer, and then he goes home. It's over. The season's over. They don't come back. They don't come back to Durham. She says it. You don't come back to Durham. 
So she never has to take the chance on a grown-up anything being serious. And in a certain way, neither does he, even though he's got a different set of rules. So it's all scary and exciting, not just sexy, what lies ahead for them. And I think maybe that's another reason the movie sustains, because they have both taken a huge chance. Even Nuke has changed. So even though I say characters don't have to change, in Bull Durham, I think they do. Oh, yes. I, I can... oh, White Man Can't Jump. Woody doesn't change. There you go. Yeah. You go. Billy Hoyle doesn't change. The um... And that's the biggest hit. That's the most successful. That's the most successful movie I've ever made financially. Nobody changed. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the thank you for uh, thank you for that explanation because that's that's very helpful to me not only as a film fan but also as a writer myself. Uh, just constantly trying to to see if I'm doing something wrong. Um, now let's uh, let's move over for a second. This has been great about Bull Durham and 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 may Bull Durham last forever, which I, it will. It will continue to pe people will continue to enjoy it, and everybody listening. Get a copy of Ron's book, The Church of Baseball, because it's 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 a book that gets deep inside the head of a director in a, in a battle, and it's it, it has it has elements of a war movie because you're fighting on many fronts, and I, I I've done a lot of forensic research into the making of classic films going back to my college days, and this is just a lot of fun to read, Ron, and thank you for that. Thank you. Um, under fire uh which was your first produced screenplay um i read somewhere that it wasn't always going to be nicaragua did it start as a vietnam story or is that incorrect um it, it always ended up in nicaragua but there it i have a first position credit there's another writer i can't remember his name who has second position credit the producer, John Taplin, bought this script about a photojournalist. And it was, a lot of it was in Vietnam, and then it was in the London fashion photography world, and then it ended up in Nicaragua. <laughs> um, and Roger Spottiswood said he would direct it if I wrote it, rewrote it. It's a page one rewrite. And we were both interested in the corrupt history of American politics in Central America, um, and uh, Nicaragua had just had its revolution, which the script actually predicts is going to go terribly wrong, and it got changed a little bit at the end against my will, but and it has gone terribly wrong, which isn't to say Somoza had to go. So we said we would like to basically set the whole thing in Nicaragua, and um, John Taplin said, great, and and that's, we went to Nicaragua. Uh, Roger and I, and two photojournalists, Matthew Nathans and Rod Nordland, a brilliant, brilliant uh, journalist, uh, international journalist, um, one of those guys who were, you know, first playing into Jonestown, those kind of guys, you know. Yeah, let's get to, let's get to uh, the Danbos region, the day, you know, I mean, these guys are nuts, and, um, and, and they're brilliant in a way, and we wanted to capture that. So we hung out with photojournalists, went to Nicaragua, came back and wrote the script. And um, that's the story. Yeah, it's, it's, it's again, um, 
it, you didn't direct Roger directed it, but another movie where casting was just perfect. I, I think Nolte was just perfect as the photojournalist. I thought Gene Hackman was great. Joanna Cassidy was very, very compelling. Uh, you get lucky times with casting like that. Yes, and also let's not forget the late, great Jean-Louis Trintignant, the French actor, the legendary actor who plays the CIA uh, man in Nicaragua, and he makes the speech that has come true. The, the you know the rebels fall in love with the Marxists. The, uh, the fall in love with the, the rebels. The rebels fall in love with the Marxists. The Marxists fall in love with themselves. And um, you know, and that with Daniel Ortega has proven that's true. I mean, he's become Somoza and uh, in Nicaragua. So it's very sad what happened down there because it was not a Marxist revolution. It was a very popular, wide-based revolution. Um, and the Marxists in those, in those times were very good at co-opting. They were very organized and and they could they co-opted a lot of popular revolutions. And so I, I was a great supporter of the revolution. Only a madman wouldn't have been. But boy, you could see it go terribly wrong. No. That group, Borges and, and Thomas Borges and I'm getting off on my American politics here, but Daniel and all those people took over. Uh, it's been very sad because then it just brings in the far right fascists, and now you've got extremists on both sides. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful country, by the way. The people in Nicaragua are just some of the, the most gracious, warmest people in the world, and they're being screwed again. And you, uh, on, a, on a lighter note, uh, obviously, we've been talking pol pol political situation. Um, I thought Jerry Goldsmith gave that movie a terrific gift with the music. Jerry Goldsmith was genius. I, I, he should live longer for all of us. I never got to work with him directly. Roger hired him. It's one of the great scores. He later says he thinks it was his best score. And he's got some incredible scores, you know. I mean, Chinatown, anybody? You know, on and on. So, uh, yeah, I love that score. Definitely, definitely. Well, we've been listening to Ron Shelton talk about various aspects of Bull Durham under fire and baseball and religion and politics. We've covered a lot of things. I ha we're doing this on audio so the people at home don't see you, Ron, but behind you on the shelf are a couple of those little, I think those are little dolls. Are they characters from one of your movies? Yeah, somebody gave me this. Is, uh, these are called the uh, Pop. I don't know what they're, Funko. Never heard of this stuff, but these are a, a, a Japanese company. This is Billy Hoyle and Sidney Dean. There's Woody and Wesley from Why Men Can't Jump are now household. I don't know what they are, but yeah, apparently I'm told don't open these. These will go way up in value. So I'm not opening <laughs> I wish I had my bobblehead. You can't see. I have a bobblehead of me, but I, I as a director, baseball player, but. I'll have to bring one in, but I realize this is audio only. So, did you, uh, when you were in the minor leagues, did they have baseball cards for minor league players? No, I never had a baseball card. Never had a baseball card. Okay. Nope. I think but they... I, I will tell you if the tape's on, the uh, when you sign in the minor leagues and you make the team for the first, a guy shows up in those days from Tops. Tops chewing gum because 
At that time, Topps was the only real baseball card company. Now there's a lot. And he would sign you for a lifetime contract to use your image for $5. He would give you a $5 bill forever. He would own you. You would never get any further remuneration. And this, and you were happy to take the $5. Just to have the idea that if you made it at the big leagues, you would be on a baseball card. That has changed since, but <laughs> that is the absolute truth. You mean they'll give, they'll give me five dollars to have a bid? A bid? I would give you money. I would give you ten dollars. So, by the way, I have to say this: being a baseball fan, when when Crash tells tells uh, Nuke that the difference between a three hundred hitter and a two fifty hitter is twenty five hits during the course of the season. I thought that was pretty, 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 pretty revelatory. <laughs> I never knew that. I yeah, it used to keep me awake at night. <laughs> yeah, it's true though. It is true. Do the number. Do the math. It's amazing how few three hundred hitters there are in Major League Baseball. It's it, I remember. Uh, literally dozens of them growing up, and now you you're it's lucky here. if you yeah. I'm sorry. In the National League, there were three. There were three. There were three in the National League this year. Wow. Jeff McNeil, again, the guy who chokes up five inches, hit 326, also born in Santa Barbara, like it. Well, but he imagine he's on Pepper. Freddie Freeman, who hits the ball the opposite field. I don't remember the third. That's the three in the National League. Wow. So. What does that mean? It means quick swing, uppercutting. Kyle Schwarber is great, but that shouldn't be your model. Jeff McNeil or Freddie Freeman should be your model. Any predictions on the World Series? You think the Phillies are going to take them? Well, they certainly could because they, even though they snuck in, they got hot. They, they got hot, and all their they started believing in themselves. And when you're, you know. Baseball's weird. The Dodgers didn't do anything wrong. Everybody writes sometimes what they do. Then it's baseball. You can lose a three-game series, five-game series. And it happens. It just happens. It's called baseball. A pitcher gets hot. You know, the sports press is idiots about this stuff. They don't. Nobody screwed up. You know, the Dodgers lost all their pitch. I mean, they, they lost to a hotter team. And the Phillies turned out to be the hottest team of all. So I'm all for the Phillies because, like everybody else, how do you root for the Astros except you do – you got to root for Dusty a little bit. I played against him in the minors, by the way, Dusty. That's we go back. <laughs> well, the one I, I agree with you about the press can drive the uh, clubs crazy with their uh, Monday morning quarterbacking. The question becomes also, you know, Roberts pulling his pitcher in the fifth inning, who's pitched almost perfectly. There's this kind of attitude in Major League Baseball that pitchers. Uh, need to be pulled. The Cubs uh, did the same thing in the seventh game of the 2016 World Series with Kyle Hendricks, and it almost cost them the game. Uh, I think that <coughs> pitchers, I think, should be allowed to pitch a little bit longer, especially with a suspect bullpen. I I completely agree with that, and I would say not only that, I, I will lecture here, they couldn't wait to get Kyle, Kyle, uh, Tyler Anderson out of the game. The other guy said, thank God, we can touch this guy. But he also pulled Mitch Hill out of the game, the Red Sox, 
when Hill had gone six and a third, one hit against the Red Sox, I was at the game. Dodgers were up four to one, or four to nothing, four to nothing. And he pulls Rich Hill, who had just struck out J.D. Martinez and Mookie Betts, first two hitters on the Red Sox, third time through the lineup, which is what all the analytics guys preach. And they pull him, and they get beat eight to four. Also, go back two other two years earlier, they're against the Astros. They're up two games to one with the Astros, or one game to nothing, I can't remember. And Bueller is pitched a shutout, one nothing shutout, into the ninth inning. After the eighth inning, they pulled Bueller because he had 106 pitches, and they lost the game. The Dodgers might have won two other World Series. Now, is that Roberts or is that Andrew Friedman? They got 20 analytics people on staff. I'm not sure. Guys, to go back to the batting average thing, to go back to the batting average thing, um, you were right, Ron. Only three guys in the National League hit over 300. Eight guys in the American League did it. And I'm looking at the list right now of the guys that hit over 300 in the American League. It's Luis Arise, who for about the last month of the season couldn't hit a beach ball. Aaron Judge, who was hitting everything. Xander Bogarts, who I don't even know where he's going to play next year. He, That's the crazy thing. Jordan Alvarez, who's playing in the World Series. Jose Abreu, who couldn't hit anything for three months, somehow ended up hitting 300. Andrew Benintendi, where did that come from? Nathaniel Lowe from the Rangers, I guarantee you about five people, probably no one listening to this podcast know, who's that, know who that is because he plays for the Rangers. And then Jose Altuve, which surprises nobody. Well, yeah, um, and about three of those guys are from the Dominican Republic. <laughs> You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We've had a delightful conversation with Ron Shelton. Ron, uh, I look forward to everything that you get involved with. You are you are kind of to sports, movies, what... Uh, what uh, Martin Scorsese is to mob movies. I mean, you've done really well with them. It's kind of your your cup, and I hope you always have it full. Thank you kindly. I've enjoyed this, and I'll say hello to Gene Corr. Please do. Please do. Thanks, guys. Ron, uh, uh, ben, are we 